Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. This summer, just in case you're here with us for the first time, thanks for joining us. Um, but to fill you in, what we've been up to is really just making our way through the Bible. Um, we've been picking locations, places to visit, to go in the stories and the, the narrative of what's going along, and trying to figure out life, basically, for us here now in Ammonford. So we've been making our way through the stories, and they've kind of been in historical order, if you like. Every place we've gone to has been closer to where we are today. And so if you've got any kind of rational thinking brain, you can guess that as we've been making our way through the story of the Bible, today we're, we're at the end. We're coming to the end of it. And John said that already. We're going to be looking at the end of the story. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, we know the end of the story. Um, so this is going to be a sermon that's about life and death, about heaven and how to get there and all those sorts of things. Um, or maybe you're thinking, well, I know that the last book in the Bible is Revelation, um, and so this is going to be a sermon that's all about the end of the world, because that's what we think Revelation is all about, about destruction, about um, events and signs and weird, weird and wonderful things happening. Um, but I'm going to suggest right at the start that this isn't going to be um, about life and death and kind of heaven and spiritual living, and it's certainly not going to be about the end of the world as we usually describe it, but it's really, as we get to the end of the story, it is going to be about the end of this particular story, like what God has been up to, what we as humanity have been involved with, and how this particular story ends. It's definitely not the end of all things, as we might think about it. It's definitely not about the end of our lives. It's about God finishing the job. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Revelation 20, chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Just I'm going to read it through, and I'd prefer to have your attention. I'd prefer to have you listening and hearing what is actually there, rather than spending time flicking, finding, opening, wondering about why my version says something different to your version. That's fine. So if you want to follow along, Revelation chapter 21. We'll go a little bit into Revelation 22. Otherwise, just give your attention um, to God's Word as I read it. This is what uh, John the Apostle records at the end of the last book in our Bibles. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God." He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they a share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, that's something from earlier in Revelation, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which the angel also used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each interval gate was made of a single pearl, and the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was there on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, where are we this week? Well, we've said we're at a party, but really, it's another wedding, isn't it? I don't know whether you picked that up in the description of what John saw, but he speaks about this really confusing wedding party that's going on. There's a bride, which is a city, 
And if that's not weird enough on its own, the groom is a lamb. It's a, it's a properly strange one. If we're anywhere in Revelation, we should be expecting properly strange stuff. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because John is trying to describe stuff that we really, really should be able to understand, but also stuff that is totally and utterly not in line with the way we see or we understand the world. What John is seeing and what John is describing, and this is part of what we look at, is something that is so, so familiar for us, but also so different, we can't really comprehend it or understand it. When he describes the city, okay, which is an important detail, not that we're going to get into that this morning, but he's using dimensions, he's using descriptions, and if we wanted to try and be literal about that, it would be a description that just totally and utterly doesn't make sense. Not John like saying, well, here are the street plans. You go down to Carmarthenshire and you get plans for Ammonford or something like that, and these are the ones that you'd find of what will be built. But trying to speak to us in terms that we know, things that we're familiar with, because what he sees is familiar, but also because what's going on is totally and utterly unfamiliar. Now, I said this is John, the apostle, we were in uh, his gospel last week at the wedding in Cana, and I said that one of the marvelous things about John, especially in the Bible, is that he is someone who can take a detail, he can take a word or a picture, and he can use that to transport us somewhere else. In my notes here, I've got John, the gospel writer, is an expert in teleportation. Like so often, what he is trying to do with the way that he describes things is not being dishonest, but to use stuff that we're supposed to already know to flood our brains with other things, or, or really to try and take us along with what's happening to him being whisked away somewhere else. He's trying to get us to upload loads of ideas into our, into our minds so that we can understand, because it's difficult to understand what he's seeing. So what is there then? What is he seeing in this final vision, like this closing picture of the story of the Bible and, in many senses, the story of what God is doing in our world? What does he describe? Well, there are details, yes, but let's zoom out a little bit. First of all, there's God. God is there, mentioned plenty of times. There are people specific people mentioned, but as well, just generally, people, humans. It speaks about the nations and the kings and things like that. There are people there, and there's the place. There's this city. There's this new creation. It's, it's somewhere, isn't it? There's God, there's people, and there's a place. Now, already, if we are people who have been reading our Bibles, especially now, we Clandabia dwelling folks this morning, transport ourselves into the lives and the situations of the first people to receive this, they're certainly seeing God, a people, and a place, and it's uploading, it's teleporting, it's transporting them somewhere. And through our stories, whether we've noticed it or not this summer, these three things have all been there. We started off on the beach, the crossing of the Red Sea, that was the story, wasn't it, of God taking people to a place. All those three elements were there. God taking people to a place. So there's a link straight away. Next, we went up the mountain in Exodus, the covenant being made, the law being given, and it was about a people 
learning what life should be like with God in the place that he's taking them to. So those three elements are there again, people, God, a place. Then we went on holidays. We went into exile, away from home. It was people being removed from a place by God, waiting for that promise that God made them to take them back again. And then last week, we were at the first wedding, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus arrived. And we saw that it was God stepping into the place where people live. If you went straight away, John chapter 1 is exactly what John has in mind. He wants us to see this person, Jesus, is the God that we've been looking at the entire way through our scriptures, coming to us where we are. God, a people, and a place. So, if we've got these lenses on, if we're happy to be teleported by John, Revelation 21 and 22 just aren't that weird yet, are they? Like these are elements that we're just like, come on. Yeah, we've, got, we've seen these so many times. God, a people, and a place. They're the main ingredients of any story, essentially, that we find in the Bible. But what's missing? What's missing from the story? It's not just the things that are included, but the things that are absent. And what's John trying to tell us there? Well, if you were following along in your Bible, you'd have seen in verse 4, suffering is missing, isn't it? Verse 8 and in 27, there's a slightly tangential way of describing evil being missing. That the wrong, the, the hateful things that we do are gone and taken away. And then probably... In my mind, and this is a clue to how my mind works, the most odd absence or the most odd comment of an absence comes in verse 22. And I say it's odd because so far, if we have come to the passage and we're looking for a picture of what God is going to do at the end, what life will be like forever, pretty much anybody is dreaming and hoping for this, aren't they? We don't want to live in a world that is filled with suffering forever. Like, we can, just get, we can just make that up as something that would be brilliant. We don't want to live in a world that's full of evil forever, do we? We can just, again, that's just there, it's with us. But in verse 22, John comments on something that maybe should take us by surprise. That what's missing from this picture is a temple. Now, as I'm reading through the story, as I'm reading through the passage, that jumps out at me. Like, why even comment on that? There are loads of other things missing, okay? I'm presuming John, well, I may be wrong on this, he didn't see mobile phones. He didn't see, I don't know, zeb you know zebras. There, there's a long list of things that weren't there. But these are the things that he picks up on, suffering, evil, and a temple. Now, why on earth is he speaking about a temple? Why is he even making note of that? Well, it is a change of pace, isn't it? But we need to stop and we need to think about the three elements that are really strongly there. God, people, and a place. And what those things actually mean to, especially John's original hearers, and what they are in really all of the stories that we've looked at. You see, in the Bible, you will find the story of God meeting with people in a particular place. To begin with, in the story of Exodus, it's in the tabernacle. It's in the tent, a special place that actually has its measurements um, 
described in a very similar way to the city that we're looking at in this passage. And it's a place where God says, do you know what? Even though you are people who will not follow my rules, I will live amongst you in this special place. My glory will dwell through the sacrifices that you make with various kinds of animals for various kind of um, things that you do wrong as a people. Later on, we read about that tabernacle, that tent, kind of getting slightly more permanent. Um, it's in the end of the life of David, the start of the life of Solomon, where the tent, the tabernacle, becomes a temple. It's exactly the same thing, exactly the same idea. It's just put down in stone and in wood. It's where God can be with his people in a very specific place. And the, again, the only way that that can be true is the people obey, and when they, they make mistakes, when they fall short, when they rebel, um, they offer sacrifices, they kill animals, and, and there's their blood sacrifice that's made so that God can remain with his people without destroying them completely. And so John is seeing this vision, and he's thinking, God is here. People are here. Loads of people, more people than I ever would have expected, maybe. They're all together in one place, so surely there's a temple, because that's where that happens. There's a tabernacle, and in that whole system, there is going to be animals being sacrificed. In my quiet times recently, I've been reading the um, building of the temple, transitioning from the tent to the stones and the wood by Solomon, and the numbers of animals that are sacrificed. There's a description of the streets, and it's flowing with their blood. It's ridiculous. Only John says, when I looked and I see what I'm expecting is that same thing, but the temple is absent because the whole place is God with his people. Like, it's all a temple. And when we start to clue into these various things that John is trying to use to teleport us here, to get certain ideas and pictures in our minds, all of a sudden, the fact that there's a lamb there getting married starts to make sense, doesn't it? Because when we read lamb, and where maybe Rich Thomas, we read lamb and we think, uh-oh, price index, up or down. It's a commodity. It's something that is like depended on for livelihood. For some of us, it's, oh, I hate the taste, I hate the smell of lamb. That's all you can think about. It's, it's a food stuff. Or maybe if you're innocent, you think, oh, pretty cute little lamb, springtime, you know, flowers blossoming, Snowdrops coming out, lambs frolicking in the hills, all of these kind of various pictures. What John has in mind is something there to be sacrificed in order that that reality of people with God together in a place can be achieved. And this lamb who is there has been described before by John in his gospel and in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the groom, the lamb, is described as a lamb that looked like it had been slain. This isn't just a cute lamb. This isn't just Sunday dinner waiting to happen. This isn't a commodity, uh, part of a life income. This is a sacrificial lamb. And John says this lamb who is alive and talking looks like one that has at some point been slaughtered. You go all the way back to the start of John's gospel, John chapter 1, and the words, they actually come out of John the Baptist's mouth, but it's when he's looking at Jesus 
and he's introduced as the Lamb of God, the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. And so that's why John comments that there's no temple. Because in his scheme of it, he has all the various elements, God, the people, the place. He even has the sacrificial lamb. But here's the amazing, amazing thing that he's trying to get across, is that there isn't any tabernacle or temple anymore, a special place where sacrifices are going to be repeated because Jesus is there, the one who has made the single sacrifice for all time. That blood has been spilt. That's really what his gospel is about. It's about Jesus coming, living, dying in our place and rising to life again. So John looks at the end of the story and he sees this wonderful place and he sees one singular sacrifice that's supposed to get us there. Let's just keep on looking for things that John has included to teleport us and start helping us to to finalize what we're seeing. There's more. You might have picked up on these details. There's no particular reason why you would have, unless, of course, this week you've been reading Genesis chapter 1 or 2 or things like that. But it opens up, verses uh, 1, I think, of chapter 21, speaks about heaven and earth being created. That's literally how Genesis 1 opens, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not an accident. John is trying to get us to think about that time when God made everything that exists. There's a description in chapter 22 of a river flowing out from the throne. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, that's the exact description that you find of Eden. Eden is a place that out of the middle of it flows this wonderful river that feeds and waters everything. There are these random references to gold, And gold in a way that I think shows us this, you know, language, things that we're familiar with, but things that we just can't comprehend. Gold that is so pure that it is as clear as glass or as crystal. Now, I'm not an expert in gold, but I don't think when I go shopping for gold jewelry, that has never happened. I'm not entirely sure it ever will happen. But the thing that I should be looking for is see-throughness, is it? Like as a symbol of, oh, this is a really good gold chain. Is that the sort of thing you might... For all I know, it would just be glass. But he's keen to point out, this is a place of gold. Why? Because one of the main descriptions of Eden at the start, Genesis 1 and 2, is a place where the gold is like fine, brilliant, top-notch. And then really the reason I included chapter 22 in this for us this morning is because there's this description of the tree of life. The tree of life is literally something that is taken from Eden and deposited here in chapter 22 for us. We're supposed to be being teleported with all this discussion of temples and lambs and God and peoples and places, not to sacrificial places, but life as God made it. Him and us in a place. Eden. John, at the very end of the story, is trying to teleport us, transport us back to the very start of the story. Do you know what? There is one more detail that I picked up that I just couldn't leave out. In chapter 22, John mentions, doesn't he, that there there is no more curse. And the curse, of course, comes in in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall... After people reject God, 
after people turn their back on his rule and his authority, after people decide that life their way is going to be much, much better than life his way, God curses the earth, man and the woman, and and the serpent. He curses them all. But John picks out that, no, 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 here's, here's a return to everything that was before that. So whilst he's looking forward to the end of the story, and the, the end, if you, okay, if you like, the end of the world as we know it, he's saying it's not so unlike the very start of the story. God's finishing the job is really putting things back as they were. We've seen it before. That's, that's the point. That it's maybe alien to us. It's maybe foreign to us. But John is keen for us to, to know that what will come isn't so disfamiliar. Uh, if we've ever read our Bibles, all of this will be triggering things in our minds. But it's not just at the start, and it's not just John looking forward. It's right there throughout, actually. Um, uh, in the New Testament, uh, the apostles spoke about something like this. Peter in Acts chapter 3, he's preaching and he's talking about various things, but this is just one of the comments that he makes. He's speaking about Jesus, the appointed Messiah, and he says, heaven must receive him until the time, until the end of the world, until he's ready to come back. I mean, Peter could have used those phrases, but he uses this phrase, until the time of the restoration of all things. Looking forward to the future of God putting back right all that had gone before. Jesus spoke about it. The end of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking about the future again, and he says this, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, of me putting things right when the Son of Man comes on his glorious throne. But it's not just there now made clear because Jesus has said it and Peter and the other apostles took it up. It was there, you look at any of the prophets, any of the prophets, and there are glimpses of what is happening. I chose one this week, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud that covers all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. No more death. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from every eye, from every face. He will remove our disgrace from the whole earth. The Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, it's been there the whole time. The whole unfolding of the story has been gearing up towards this, that what God intended at the very start, he is working to reinstate, to put right. He is finishing off the job. So quickly, I want to finish by asking the question, so what? Like, if that is the picture, okay, so 
not life after death, spiritual living away from this mess, but if it is God finishing off what he always had planned to achieve, filling the creation, filling the earth with you and with me and with him and his glory and his rule and his reign, perfection. What does that matter now for us apart from we've just got to wait until it comes? Well, let me ask a different question. What do you want? You ask most people what they want in this life, this world, and they will say, I want relief from hurt. I want relief from pain. I want relief from evil. Perhaps they'll say, I want relief from the requirement to constantly be performing, to be striving to be good enough. That's what we want. When people come with their objections of, towards God, how can there be a God when the world is like this? They're saying, I want a world that is such and such. And the world is the world that we're heading towards. So what? Jesus is so committed to making that same world that we all want that he lived and he died and he rose again so that we could enjoy it forever. We're always crying out, aren't we, in our various different ways. Lord, just do something about this world that we live in. And here's John saying, yes, God has done something. He is doing something, and he will do something. It's Jesus saying, what you want, I want even more. I'm even willing to give my life so that we can have it. So my invitation to you perhaps this morning is, if you are someone who has never really bought into Jesus, has never really kind of got on board with who he is and what he's done in the world and what he will do in the world, I would just say, do you want to be a part of what's happening? Quite often we can think of what Jesus has done simply as kind of cleansing our consciousness. Consciousness? Con- I need, need help, vocabulary help you. You know, my conscience. Cleansing our consciences. That's the correct words, okay. He has come so that I don't need to feel guilty anymore. And look, you keep coming back to Amford Evangelical Church and we will tell you that plenty of times. That is true. But like that's all we see Jesus is doing. So often as well, we can come and we can say that Jesus has come and done what he's going to done to give us confidence that we can feel okay, feel valued. You are so loved that he died for you. Again, you keep coming back to Amphitheater Evangelical Church and we will say that is true. But it's so much more than that. Sometimes we say that what Jesus has done is just coming and making it so that we can be content. Ah, at last, I found purpose. I found that sense of belonging. I'm not like striving. I'm not like wandering around anymore. He's given me contentedness. Guess what? You keep coming back to Amphitheater Evangelical Church. I hope that you will hear us say that time and time again. But it is so much more. Can you see that when we get to the end of this story, what we see is that Jesus is part of, or, or, or the main thrust of what Jesus is doing, is renewing our world perfectly. That includes 
earning our forgiveness. That includes helping us to see where, how we relate to the universe and to God and to each other. That includes having that sense of finally being home that we've been speaking about the last couple of weeks. But it includes just putting the world right as we know it should be and as God always wanted it to be. And so my invitation to you this morning isn't about conscience. It isn't about confidence. It isn't about contentedness. It's just an invitation to, to be part of what we all want, living in our perfect world with our perfect creator. So what? You've come and you have previously got on board with Jesus. Like, Jesus is your bag. You're a Christian. You've put your faith, you've put your trust in him. What should we take away from this? Three things. I think there's two ways that we can sometimes wrongly view the world around us. Perhaps you hate this world. Like when you hear stories about one family having three different people with cancer pretty much in the same space of two years, you just think this world is turd. It's rubbish, isn't it? And I can't wait to get away from it as quickly as I can. So what would be, like, don't be so quick to, like, do away with creation and the physical and, and stuff because there's so much that is wonderful in this world. It is marred, it is tainted, it is broken. Paul speaks about it in Roman 8, that it is groaning and it's wanting itself to be put right. So what? Like, it's not spiritual, ethereal, floating on a cloud that we're aiming for. It's like perfect living with Jesus, like we all want and we all imagine. Perhaps, though, we're too far the other way. Like, we really, really, really enjoy life in this world. There's so much stuff that we are plugged into, and it is it's properly good. We enjoy, we enjoy the fact that Liverpool are so far unbeaten this season, and Swansea are, like, almost top of the league. We... Um, we, we enjoy the food that we eat. We enjoy the people that are around us. And maybe as Christians, we've got this view of, oh, I want every second here to count because I think when I die and I go to heaven to be with Jesus, all that stuff that I really love is going to be taken away from me. And I know probably I'll be satisfied with what I get in exchange, but really I'll be a bit sad too to have lost all that stuff that I've been enjoying while I've been on earth. Like we need, if that's you then you need to know that what Jesus is about isn't ripping us away from the things that we love. It's making sure that we're somewhere where we can love that properly and it doesn't have all that pain of former players coming back to score against us or food poisoning that catches us the next day or people who we love dying and, and not being there anymore. We need to realize that it isn't a case of this world is awful and I want to get away as quickly as I can or this world is wonderful and it'll be terrible that I'm going. It's that Jesus loves this world and he is making it right. And so I challenge you just to think about that. Change how we view the world that we live in. Change how we view the eternity that we're going to enjoy. But also change how we speak about and how we invite people to be a part of this. Like, how, how often have we as a church invited people, challenged people maybe, or been challenged by people who say, oh, I hate this, you know, I hate the God that you proclaim because he's sitting idly by and he's not doing anything about putting an end to all the suffering. How many times have we said, you know what, Just describe this utopian place, this perfect, wonderful world, 
and then shown them that actually that is where Jesus is planning on taking us. That is what Jesus is doing. That he is helping us forgiveness, helping us purpose, helping us value. But ultimately, he's helping us to live as we were created to live forever with him. How often do we share and invite people to be a part of that? Anyway, I've gone on. I hope this summer, as we've kind of taken our walk through, and especially as we've gone into John's writing and I like the details, that I've encouraged you all just to, just to read your Bibles with an open mind and an open ear to what the rest of the Scripture says. Like we've tried to give you a whole Bible story, and we've tried to plug in and link across where things um, are happening, but this isn't just something that you need to come on a Sunday morning to do. This is something that you can do on your own as you are in God's Word follow along, find out. Uh, there is so much more to know, to explore, and to enjoy. And with that, I'm just going to pray, and the band are going to come up and lead us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a source of exploration and teleportation. We thank you that it is a place of good news for us. And we pray especially now, Lord, as we come to the end of the series, we've come to the end of the Bible, we come to the end of the story, that we would actually be excited about what might be next. Lord, maybe if it's for the first time this morning, someone here realizing that being part of what you are doing isn't, as John described it, having rules and regulations shouted at us from that overzealous lifeguard, but it's enjoying life in the pool party without being shoved and without being dunked and without being sunburnt. It's glorious living. Lord, perhaps... If we're here this morning and we've known you for years and years and years and decades and decades and decades, Lord, help us just to, just to see what you have made us a part of. Help us to look forward to it. Help us to enjoy where we are now. And help us to encourage and connect other people into that, Lord. To not be ashamed of where things are heading, Lord, but excited. Help us to see that we, in what Jesus is doing, have that answer that everyone is desperate for. Help us to share that and to invite others along, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.